Pray with me. Loving Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us through your forceful words to Egypt and to Judah in this uh, this very powerful passage. We ask that uh, that you would humble us to again to hear and to respond uh, according to your perfect will. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good morning. The year I graduated from Texas A and M, uh, a dear brother in Christ whom I loved very much stopped by my parents' house when I was visiting my mom and dad. Uh, he came by to talk to, to me and my mother, who had loved him like one of her own for many years. His name was Stan. He had been uh, saved about five years earlier, around the same time I got saved, and through the same home Bible study uh, that was led by my high school biology teacher, Mike Turnage. God had saved Stan out of a very self-indulgent uh, background. And Stan had always struggled to let go of the worldliness that, that continually wrestled to pull his attention and affection away from his Savior and Lord. That day, Stan said something to me and to my mom that I'll never forget. He said, God won't let go of me. That's the best thing and the worst thing in my life. Just a couple of weeks later, Stan was uh, driving way too fast on his motorcycle on a dark night on a country road without a helmet, and he came upon a section of road that was under construction. He went straight through a very small lane change sign and straight into a webwork of rebar, and his wrestling match ended. Our passage this morning is about two different nations that were wrestling against God. And it's about who was always certain to win the wrestling match. Verse 1 of Jeremiah 46 is actually a summary statement that, that previews everything that we're going to see in chapters 46 through 51 of this book. Uh, that verse says simply, that which came as the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, concerning the nations. Most of what we've seen up to this point has been directed to the kings and the people of Judah. Now God is turning his attention to the nations. He'll have one more declaration to give to his covenant people, though, at the end of this chapter. Uh, in the final decade of the 7th century BC, there was a huge power play underway to determine which nation would become the dominant empire of the ancient Near East after the decline of Assyria, which up to that point had been the most, the, the largest and most powerful empire in the history of the world. The great Assyrian capital of Nineveh had fallen in 612 BC to the combined forces of the Babylonians and the Medes. Egypt had been allied with Assyria, the loser of that struggle, 
and Egypt was now trying to retain control of some of the cities that had come under its control during the time of Assyria's dominance. One of those cities was Carchemish, in the northwestern part of what is now called Syria. In the year 609 BC, Pharaoh Necho came up from Egypt with his army to secure the city of Carchemish for Egypt. But he was delayed for a while when a Judahite king named Josiah refused to let the Egyptian army pass through Judah. In the battle that ensued at a place in Palestine called Megiddo, King Josiah was killed. Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, then ruled over Judah for only three months, and then Pharaoh Necho took him into captivity. And the Pharaoh appointed his brother, another son of Josiah named Jehoiakim, to rule as, as Necho's own puppet king in Judah to do his bidding. Uh, then Pharaoh Necho continued with his army up to Carchemish, and they enjoyed a brief period of success in reoccupying that city and retaking control of some of the less fortified cities and towns of that, of that region. Jeremiah chapter 46 begins in the year 605 B.C., in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. In that year, the tides turned for Egypt in the worst way, in what historians know as the Battle of Carchemish. My title for this message is God Knows Where You Live. If that sounds a little ominous, that's by intent. God's very forceful message to Egypt in this chapter, if you distill it down to one idea, is essentially this. Whether you go up to do battle or go home to hide, you will deal with God. In verses 1 through 12, we get the first part of that, of that declaration. If you go up to do battle with men, it's really God that you will have to deal with. Your concern will ultimately not be with men. It will be with God. The first 12 verses of Jeremiah 46 focus on one hugely pivotal event in Egypt's history that happened in that year, 605 BC, and that's the Battle of Carchemish. That event put an end to Egypt's imperial aspirations. And by imperial aspirations, I just mean Egypt's ambition to hold on to and expand the lands that were under her control. For a time, Egypt had been a very powerful force. But after, after the demise of Assyria, Egypt, uh, Egypt struggled to hold on to any power. At the Battle of Carchemish, it looked like things were going to go quite well for Egypt. The forces of the Egyptians outnumbered the forces of their enemy, the Babylonians, more than two to one, more than two to one. Egypt thought it was going to be a walk in the park when the Babylonians tried to lay siege to the city. Verses three and four describe an Egyptian army mightily equipped, locked and loaded, 
if you want to put it that way, going up with great courage and confidence and joined by mercenaries that were hired from Ethiopia and Libya. Verse 3 says, Line up the shield and buckler and draw near for the battle. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, and take your stand with helmets on. Polish the spears, put on the scale armor. Verses 7 through 9 pick up that same imagery of, of seeming invulnerability for the Egyptians. Verse 7, Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers whose waters surge about? Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers whose waters surge about. And Egypt has said, I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. Go up, you horses, and drive madly, you chariots, that the mighty men may march forward, Ethiopia and Put, that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. Ethiopia and Put, or Libya, were among the mercenary forces that Egypt had conscripted to help them in this, in this battle. So it sounds like they're ready to go. They're ready for anything. But right in the middle of that passage are two verses that give the readers a jolt. Verse 5 says, Why have I seen it? They're terrified. They're drawing back and their mighty men are defeated and have taken refuge in flight without facing back. Terror is on every side, declares Yahweh. Terror is on every side, declares Yahweh. Let not the swift man flee, nor the mighty man escape. In the north beside the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. And we'll see that word stumbled over and over in this passage. The Babylonians routed the Egyptians at Carchemish in an amazingly lopsided victory. So, so what happened? Were the Babylonians just so much better as warriors that they could decimate an equally battle-hardened Egyptian army even though they were outnumbered by that army two to one? The answer is no. That's not why things went as they did. Verse 10 tells us why things went as they did. For that day belongs to Yahweh of armies. A day of vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes and the sword will devour and be satiated and drink its fill of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for Yahweh, God of armies, in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. God says then in verse 11, Go up to Gilead and obtain balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have multiplied remedies. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry of distress. For one warrior has stumbled over another, and both of them have fallen down together. The brilliant strategy of Egypt's generals and the meticulous training of Egypt's army were reduced to confused chaos in the field of battle, not by the superior strategy and strength of the Babylonians, but by Yahweh, the God of armies. According to the narrative here, one Egyptian soldier literally stumbled over another so that both of them fell together under the sword of Babylon. It was like the Keystone Cops. Google it. 
<laughs> God's taunt against Egypt after their terrible defeat was go up to Gilead to obtain balm for your wounds, but it won't do you any good. In vain you have multiplied remedies. There is no healing for you. If one army has waged an unsuccessful battle against another army, the loser of the battle might be able to retreat, recover, regroup, and return to fight another day. That has happened myriad times in the history of nations and wars. The, the one who loses the battle might find healing in their retreat, but not, not if the one that they're doing battle with is the living God. Egypt did not recover after Carchemish to make another try at it. They went home. They went home to flee for safety. But that didn't help their situation because whether you go up to do battle against men or go, go home to hide from men, you will still deal, you will still deal with God. Friends, here is something that you and I must know in order to live in the truth instead of in the lie. Whatever your war, whatever your battle in this life, other people aren't your problem. And other people aren't your salvation. God is all of both. Let me say that again. Other people aren't your problem, and other people aren't your salvation. God is all of both. If you go home to hide from men, you will still deal, still deal with God. After their stunning defeat at Carchemish, the Egyptian army returned home with their tail between their legs. They fled to the safety of home, shamed in the eyes of every nation, with the cry of their distress heard over the whole earth according to the passage. But home was no longer a place of safety because it was God, not men, who had marked Egypt out for severe judgment. And his purpose in doing so was not only to avenge himself against a rebellious nation, but to turn the hearts of some in that nation to himself. Verse 13 introduces a second oracle of judgment against Egypt, delivered through the prophet Jeremiah. Now that the time frame has shifted to what we would call the present time in Jeremiah's day, the, the city of Jerusalem has fallen under the hand of this same enemy, Nebuchadnezzar. And the few Judahites that survived and were not taken into captivity to Babylon fled to Egypt for safety. They fled to Egypt to get away from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. Verse 13 now introduces a second oracle of judgment against Egypt delivered through the prophet Jeremiah in the days in which Judahites had fled to and settled in Egypt. Jeremiah introduces the second oracle this way. Verse 13, the message 
which Yahweh spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. In the next verse, verse 14, God instructs Jeremiah to make a proclamation in the cities of Egypt. And then he names some cities in Migdal and Memphis and Tophanes, saying, Take your stand and get yourself ready, for the sword has devoured those around you. The same nation that God had already used to judge his own people, Judah, and that he was presently using to judge nations throughout the ancient Near East, the same nation that had just devastated Egypt's army at Carchemish was about to come to Egypt's own great cities. And it's no coincidence that the three cities that God mentions by name here in verse 14 are among the same cities mentioned back in chapter 44, verse 1. The very cities in which the Judahites had settled after fleeing from Judah to Egypt to get away from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. You see the irony? Everything that we find in God's oracles to the Egyptians here in chapter 46 had already been foretold to the Judahites through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 46, 15 and 16 declare yet again years later that what had given the Babylonian army such an overwhelming victory against Egypt at Carchemish had had nothing to do with the strategy or strength of Babylon. Verse 15 says, Why have your mighty ones become prostrate, Egypt? They do not stand because Yahweh has thrust them down. They have repeatedly stumbled. Indeed, they have fallen against one another. And then they said, Get up and let us go back to our own people and to our native land, away from the sword of the oppressor. All the skill and might of the Egyptian army had been useless to them, not because of Babylon, but because of God. The Egyptians had seen this happen before. Way back in Exodus chapter 14, when the Egyptian army had pursued the Israelites into the heart of the Red Sea, whose waters God had just miraculously parted, it was Yahweh, who brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion in the midst of the sea. It was he who caused their chariot wheels to swerve and who made them drive with difficulty so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for Yahweh is fighting for them against us, against the Egyptians. But before they could, before they could, regain their control over their own chariots and horses enough to turn back to the shore. God returned the waters of the Red Sea to their place and drowned the entire army of Egypt. Even while the Israelites were emerging on the opposite shore, still on dry ground. Just before the waters of that sea crashed down on their heads, the very last realization of many in that doomed Egyptian army was, was the very stark awareness of who it is with whom they actually had to do. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Judah. It was Yahweh, the God of armies.
and him alone. But Egypt had too quickly forgotten that worldview-defining truth. Back here in Jeremiah 46, upon arriving home in Egypt after the routing at Carchemish, the Egyptians had blamed Pharaoh for the loss of their great opportunity to dramatically expand the Egyptian empire through a victory at Carchemish. Verse 17 says, They cried out there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a big noise. He has let the appointed time pass by. But they still had it wrong because their defeat wasn't Pharaoh's doing any more than it was Nebuchadnezzar's doing. I'll say again that what we're dealing with here is a worldview-defining truth. This is the point of this powerful passage, beloved. The stunning defeat of the Egyptian army at Carchemish wasn't Pharaoh's doing and it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's doing. It was Yahweh's doing and his alone. And I'll say again that in order for you and me to live in the truth instead of in the lie, we must know this, that whatever the war, whatever the battle that we face in this life, other people are not our problem and other people are not our salvation. God is all of both. In the verses that follow here in Jeremiah 46, Years after their defeat at Carchemish and their flight back to Egyptian soil, the one who's doing that defeat was now sets before the Egyptians the rest of his decreed judgment against them. And any in Egypt who had ears to hear must have realized that home was no longer any refuge at all. Verse 18, God says, As I live, declares the king whose name is Yahweh of armies. Surely, one who comes, one comes who looms up like Tabor among the mountains or like Carmel by the sea. Make your baggage ready for exile, O daughter dwelling in Egypt. For Memphis will become a desolation. It will even be burned down and bereft of inhabitants. God tells the Egyptians that it's time to pack their bags because the terror that they encountered on every side in Carchemish was now about to come to their front doors. That terror would once again take the form of the Babylonian army, but the threat would not come from Babylon or from Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar. God uses a series of metaphors in verses 20 through 24 to describe the advance of the Babylonians as they were about to come upon Egypt's own homeland. He first describes Egypt as, uh, in, in verse 20 as a pretty heifer. He says, but a horsefly is coming from the north. It is coming. Now that doesn't sound very threatening, right? A horsefly isn't a mortal prize to a great heifer. But unlike a buzzing horsefly, 
the threat that was about to come upon Egypt would not announce itself. Verse 22 says, its sound moves along like a serpent. The Babylonians would come stealthily like a serpent, moving silently and unseen over the countryside, but they would come with devastating force and in immeasurable number. The last metaphor reveals the terrible effect of this ever-approaching threat. Verse 22 says, They come to her as woodcutters with axes. They have cut down her forest, declares Yahweh. Surely it will be no more found, even though they are now more numerous than locusts and without number. The daughter of Egypt has been put to shame, given over to the power of the people of the north. Like an army of axe-wielding lumberjacks, so great in number that they cannot be counted, the approaching Babylonian army was about to fell the great cities of Egypt like the trees of a vast forest. Finally, in verses 25 and 26, God lays before Egypt the point, the point of this coming judgment. Verse 25, Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I, I am going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I, I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and into the hand of his officers. Ammon was Egypt's sun god, considered to be preeminent among all of the many gods of Egypt. Pharaoh was himself considered to be divine, just one step below the heavenly gods. Egypt had heard these things before as well. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God said of the tenth plague, the Passover plague, I, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The point of God's devastating judgment against Egypt is presented right there in verses 25 and 26. The point of the judgment was to break the Egyptians of their misplaced trust in the gods of their own making so that their hearts might be turned to Yahweh who had made them. Egypt had good reason to believe that if they simply went back home after Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar would consider it way too costly an endeavor to come and invade their homeland. There were many reasons for Nebuchadnezzar not to do that, not the least of which is that Egypt clearly had ceased in their aggression. They hoped that he would simply go on about his business of conquering lands closer to home. But Egypt's problem was never Babylon. 
And what moved Nebuchadnezzar was never his own will. Egypt's problem was God. And Egypt's only salvation would be found in turning their hearts to Yahweh, the one true God. And as surely as it would be God who would bring this great judgment against Egypt, it would be God who would bring salvation to Egypt. The stunning and wonderful conclusion of God's oracle to Egypt in this great chapter is found in the second half of the last verse of his oracle directed to the Egyptians, and that's verse 26. It simply says, Afterwards, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares Yahweh. I'll come back to that surprising declaration from God to Egypt in a moment, but I want us to see first how that promise then flows immediately into God's promise to Jacob in verses 27 and 28. This last, these last two and a half verses uh, shift the focus entirely from judgment to deliverance. And my title for this final section of the chapter is, If you're His, God will seek you out to restore you just as surely as He has sought you out to correct you. Both of those things are certain. In Jeremiah 46, verses, 20, verses 27 and 28, God says this, But as for you, O Jacob, my servant, fear not. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure, and no one will make him tremble. O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares Yahweh, for I am with you, for I am with you, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you. But as for you, I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you justly, and will by no means leave you unpunished. Now I want to immediately go back and read another couple of verses from Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 10 and 11, because these are virtually identical. Jeremiah 30, verse 10, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure, and no one will make him tremble. For I am with you, declares Yahweh, to save you. I am with you to save you. For I will make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you. But as for you, I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. When God repeats himself, beloved, we're supposed to pay attention. The magnificent promise in both of those passages has two parts, and they are both gracious 
God says, I am with you to save you. But he also says, I will correct you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. Both parts of that promise are treasure to the people of God. God's promise to Jacob that he would be with him was an ancient, ancient promise. In Genesis chapter 28, about 1,500 years before the events recorded in Jeremiah, a young man named Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, was fleeing from his brother Esau because Jacob had conspired to steal Esau's patriarchal blessing. At a place that became known as Bethel, the house of God, God appeared to Jacob in a vision. God was at the top of a ladder that reached from earth to heaven. And there were angels ascending and descending on the ladder. After showing Jacob that extraordinary vision, God spoke to Jacob from the top of that ladder. And he extended to Jacob the same threefold promise that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac to give to him the land of promise, to give to him descendants like the dust of the earth in number, and to bless every family on the earth through him. Land, seed, and blessing. And then in verse 15 of Genesis 28, God made another promise to Jacob. God said, Behold, Jacob, I am with you. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob's life from that point continued to be filled with turmoil and trouble, much of it self-imposed, because Jacob was so reluctant to fully trust in the God of his fathers but God's, God's promise to him was, was unchangeable. And now through Jeremiah, God, in our passage this morning, is speaking again to Jacob, to the nation that had arisen from Jacob in keeping with God's promise. And God again says to Jacob, I am with you to save you. I am with you to save you. God was still with Jacob just as he had always been to fulfill his promise. But beloved, that promise came with the guarantee that God's hand would always work to correct Jacob, to chasten him whenever he turned his face away from God so that God might turn his face and his heart back to himself. Jacob could not have one of part of that promise without the other until the day that God had done all that he had promised to him. The ladder between earth and heaven that God showed to Jacob when he first promised to be with him shows up again in the New Testament in the last verse of John chapter 1. As Jesus called men to be his disciples, 
through whom he would establish his church, one of those young men was Nathanael. After proving to Nathanael that Jesus had supernatural knowledge of what was in his heart, knowledge that only God could possess, Nathanael confessed to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus' response to that declaration from Nathanael was to say to him that he would see much greater things than he had seen. And then Jesus said something that any Jew would realize was pointing all the way back to Jacob's first face-to-face encounter with the living God on the very day that God promised to always be with him. Jesus said to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob is Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man who became flesh in order to seek and perfectly save that which was lost. Jesus is the gateway between earth and heaven. He is the one who goes with his own and sends his angels from heaven to earth to guard what he has bought for himself. He is the one who brings his redeemed people safely home into the very presence of God to dwell with him together with all the saints in perfect security and peace forever. If God has made you the object of his affection, he will seek you out to save you as surely as he sought you out, has sought you out to correct you. He will seek you out not only to secure for you a place in his kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to walk with you here and now through every episode of life, to save you over and over and over again in this life from all of the threats that you think are real in order that he may show to you that he alone is your source of well-being. He will save you. He will walk with you. He will be with you in every episode of your life until he fulfills all that he has promised to you and brings you home to himself. If your trust is in Jesus, God has already made you the object of his eternal affection. When you put your faith in Jesus, God put the entire eternal debt of your sin upon his son, Jesus Christ, and he clothed you in the righteousness of of Jesus so that you are forever clean in his sight. And nothing in all of God's creation will ever separate you from his love for you in Christ Jesus. Nothing. The Judahites had fled to Egypt in high-handed disobedience against God's explicit command to them through Jeremiah, not to go to Egypt, but to trust only in God. 
The Judahites had gone to Egypt to find protection from Nebuchadnezzar, whose army had destroyed their great city and God's great temple. They had gone to Egypt to find protection and provision, to find peace and security. But there is no protection or provision. There is no peace or security apart from God. No such thing even exists. And God would not, God would not allow His beloved people, His inheritance, His treasure, to remain in the belief that such a thing does exist. And He would not allow it precisely because of His love for His own. God will not allow that lie to stand in the lives of those whom he has bought for himself. There is no other well-being except God. Beloved, please listen. It was precisely because God had always been with the descendants of Jacob to save them, that their lives had been so filled with insecurity and threat, with terror on every side. It was precisely because Yahweh had been with them to save them that they would never be able to find refuge or peace or well-being in anyone or anything except God. And that very same thing is true of you if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The reasons, the, the reason, one reason, for a thousand different things in your life will become very clear when you come to agree with God that the entire course of your life is ruled by one simple reality. God made you and saved you for himself. And he is your only good. One more thing, and let there be no doubt of this. Through his unwavering faithfulness to you, whom he has already saved, whether that faithfulness is shown in correction or in rescue, God is saving others. And that brings us back to that explosive little promise in the second half of just one verse in Jeremiah 46. The second half of verse 26. Let me read that whole verse. God's talking about Egypt, and he says, I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterward, however, it, Egypt, will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. Let me read that again. Afterward, after all the judgments, Egypt will be inhabited as in the days of old. Just as God will use his correction of Judah, sorry, just as God used his correction of Judah to turn their hearts back to himself, the day is coming when he will use both his judgment against Judah 
and his fierce judgment against Egypt to turn the hearts of many Egyptians to himself. And he's not finished turning the hearts of Judahites to himself. I'm going to read a portion of Isaiah chapter 19. I've read this uh, a couple of times during our track through Jeremiah. Uh, but I keep coming back to it because it's, it's one of the most astonishing passages in the Old Testament. The promise in this passage is still future. We will get to see it fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 19 begins with a prophecy of severe judgment against Egypt. But please pay close attention to what comes at the end of that judgment. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to pick up at verse 16 of Isaiah 19. The oracle concerning Egypt, behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of Yahweh of hosts, which he is purposing against them. Now listen, starting at verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they, Egypt, will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors. And listen, and he will send them a savior and a champion, literally a mighty one. And he will deliver them. Thus, Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking, but healing, striking, but healing. So they will return to Yahweh, and he will respond to them and heal them. In that day, these last couple of verses are, are just amazing. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. It's mind-blowing. Striking but healing, so that the hearts will be turned to him. 
in all of God's dealings with you, both in times of most painful correction and of the most joyful deliverance, God is fulfilling his promise to be with you in order to save you. Whatever you think, whatever you say, whatever you do, wherever you go, it will be God with whom you have to deal every day of your life. It will be that relationship that determines everything about your well-being. That relationship and no other. Do not fear that anyone or anything else can ever rob you of well-being or give you well-being. And do not fear that God's painful, fatherly discipline will rob you of well-being. It's exactly the opposite, beloved. Hebrews 12 tells us that that very discipline that is always sorrowful for the moment inevitably yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness and makes us to share in our Father's holiness. Don't wish away God's loving construction project in your life that is conforming you to Christ. Don't wish that away because you want a pain-free existence. Embrace the beautiful truth that God is always with you to save you. And that's why everything that happens in your life happens. And rejoice in the knowledge that as he works every day in your heart, both to correct and to deliver, he is revealing himself to others through that work in you. Your refining is showing Christ to others so that they too may be drawn into the community of the redeemed through faith in him alone. Let's press on, beloved. Let's press on. Loving Father, we praise you and we thank you that there is no creature hidden from your sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And we thank you that you never, ever remove your hand from our lives and from our hearts. Thank you, Father, for your glorious promise that nothing, absolutely nothing can ever separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.